Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter him in a diverse community and participate with him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Um, welcome, everyone. Glad you're here for church. I see some of you came in costumes, and I appreciate that so much. Um, that is hilarious. So I was hoping somebody would do it. I talked about doing it for my sermon, but I didn't. So, hey, thanks. I appreciate that. That's the third compliment I've gotten on that today. Makes me feel good about it. Uh, today, we are in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And it's important that we keep in mind everything that we have talked about in the past several weeks. The beginning of Numbers introduced us to Israel's starting point in the wilderness. They were on their way to the promised land, but after being in the wilderness for a while and facing impending doom due to a scarcity of food and water, the Israelites began to question God's goodness to them. They complained against their leaders and God, questioning why they are even in the wilderness in the first place. As a result, they're forced to stay another 40 years in the wilderness, while the generation from Egypt is slowly killed off in brutal ways, as we've seen. It would be hard to imagine the blessings and the goodness of God in that space. The Israelites are afraid and doubtful that they will ever see this land supposedly flowing with milk and honey. Many of them, in fact, will not see the land. And still, here they are, on the edge of it. They can see it. We can feel the tension rise in the story like a good thriller movie. They're almost there, but will they make it? And from this place enters our scene of Hi. Balaam. Many of you have probably heard of this story, as it's actually quite comedic and holds one of the quirkiest passages in the Bible. The first time I heard this story, I was in high school, and for youth one night, my group of grade 10 or 11 boys, I can't remember how old we were, we made a funny video telling a story of Balaam and the donkey. And every time we would say the word donkey or the old King James version, like ass, we edited in a computer voice that would just blurt out donkey. So we thought we were being clever. Um, but yes, this is the story of Balaam and the donkey. But it actually goes beyond this weird story. As we're about to see, the donkey is no normal donkey. As we're about to see, this one gains the ability to speak and can see angelic figures. What the heck? And we thought bronze snakes that can heal people was crazy. Now we've got donkeys from Shrek that can save people. Not literally, but that was a helpful image for my brain and highly appropriate for a Halloween sermon. But the story goes beyond this, Balaam and his magical donkey. And the donkey's role in the story is actually quite significant. This turns out to be one of the most positive stories from the book of Numbers something I think we've all been waiting to hear. So our story begins in chapter 22, and I think it'll, there's a slide for it, uh, where we're introduced to Balak and the ongoing situation. And so we'll read from verse 1. The Israelites set out, and they camped in the plains of Moab across the Jordan from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Moab was in great dread of the people because they were so numerous. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as an ox, 
ox licks up the grass of the field. Now Balak, son of Zippor, was king of Moab at the time. It's a key, key detail. He sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor at Pethor, which is on the Euphrates in the land of Ammah, to summon him, saying, A people has come out of Egypt. They have spread over the face of the earth, and they have settled next to me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are stronger than I. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that whomever you bless is blessed, and whomever you curse is cursed. Balak has seen how this strange foreign nation made up of a bunch of seemingly helpless people has somehow defeated the surrounding nations, despite their apparent strength and power over Israel. Now he knows that Moab is next, and he's afraid that they will lose on the battlefield. So what do you do when you think you'll lose? Like any good coach, you come up with a different strategy. So Balak decides to summon none other than Balaam. But why is he summoning Balaam? Who is this guy? Why is he offering to give him money and honor to curse Israel? He seems pretty important. We know a bit about Balaam as he appears at other times in scripture and some extra biblical texts from around that time. Balaam was essentially a professional cursor. In the other mentions of Balaam in the Bible, he appears mostly in a negative light. The only semi-positive instance is in Micah, but other than that, in Joshua, Balaam petitions the Lord to curse Israel, but God refuses. In Deuteronomy, Balaam utters a curse against Israel, but the Lord turns it into a blessing. In the book of Numbers, Balaam appears again after this Balak story. And in Numbers 31, verse 16, Balaam is said to have encouraged the children of Israel to turn against the Lord at Baal Peor. And Balaam is later put to the sword by Israelites. In the New Testament, nobody really likes Balaam. He's depicted as somebody who loves to do wrong and is selfish in his work as he hires out his skills and his services. Some refer to Balaam as a diviner or a dream interpreter. He was somebody who used some sort of reading to interpret messages from the divine. He's also associated with the term seer, somebody who seeks an answer from God on some matter. In our story today, we can also see Balaam as taking up the role of a prophet. But seers in this ancient world were people who had supernatural, supernatural abilities to see what ordinary people could not. The seer was one who would report the God's intentions toward the king's enemies for specific circumstances. Furthermore, seers would give a favorable message from the gods to the king, essentially what the king would want to hear. So this is what Balak thought he was hiring Balaam to do, give him a positive message. And keep in mind that this is a very normal thing in this Old Testament time. It was not weird or especially cruel for their circumstances. It was not uncommon for people to hire such seers or prophets to come and curse a nation for them. So Balak sees this big nation of people just chilling in the wilderness, and yet somehow they keep destroying all the kings and nations that they encounter. Balak is no fool. He knows his fate will be the same if he doesn't try to do something other than fight them flat out. So Balak summons the seer Balaam to come and profess a curse over Israel that will bring favor to Balak. His expectations are understandable, and you'd think that Balaam would do just that. 
But with that said, the Balaam narrative can be broken up into several sections that actually parallel each other. It begins with the introduction, as we've read, explaining the context of the story, and then it delves into the main acts. And in this story, before he ever meets with Balak, Balaam has three encounters with God, which overlap with the donkey and the angel encounters. And after these meetings with God, Balaam attempts to curse Israel three different times. So from the introduction, we see Balak wanting to hire Balaam to come and curse Israel. So he sends some of his best men with gifts and gold to hire Balaam's services. When they get there and they meet with Balaam, they explain the situation and tell him Balak's message. Balaam responds to them, stay here tonight and I will go and I will, I will bring back word to you just as the Lord speaks to me. He has to consult God before he agrees to go. And in that night, God, sure enough, meets with Balaam. And he asks, who are these men? What do they want? So Balaam explains, but God does not want him to go. He says to Balaam, in fact, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Balaam has received his answer. And so he returns to Balak's men to decline their offer. And in disappointment, they return to Balak, who is not pleased, and he's, he's, but he's desperate. So he encourages them to go back. And he says, take more men, take more gold, more money. We really need Balaam. And sure enough, they go back and Balaam says the exact same thing. Wait here and whatever God says to me, I will tell you. And sure enough, God meets Balaam a second time. But this time he says, if, if the men have come to summon you, get up and go with them but do only what I tell you to do. Balaam takes this as express permission to be hired by Balak's men. And so off he goes. He saddles his donkey and begins the journey to see Balak and curse Israel. Balaam, his donkey, and two of his servants are on the road. Naive Balaam thinks that this will be an easy job and Balak has promised him much gold and honor. This will be a very profitable journey for him. As this group is traveling along the road, a fairly straight path, an angel of the Lord with a sword in hand appears in the middle of it, blocking their path. Unfortunately, Balaam is blind to the angel, as are the other men. But the donkey sees it clearly and veers off the road. Poor Balaam is confused. Why are you going into the field, donkey? Get back on the road. By the way, every time when I read this, I literally hear Shrek's voice in my head. Good. As he tries to steer the donkey back in the right direction, they keep on going and they're traveling through this narrow path with walls on either side when the angel appears again. Invisible to everyone but the donkey, the donkey freaks out and crushes Balaam against the wall. Again, he freaks out at him. What are you doing? Balaam promptly smacks the donkey on the butt to get it to keep going. And off they go again. But this time the road is even narrower. And the only way forwards the only way forwards is straight ahead. When the angel appears directly in front of them for a third time, the donkey, obviously aware of the danger of walking into an angel with a sword, lays down. At this point, Balaam is furious. All he's trying to do is get to Balak and do his job, but this stubborn donkey won't walk straight. He just wants to kill the thing. It's kind of like if you have a dog and they keep pulling you off in strange directions to sniff a leaf that smells exactly like every other leaf. We all get a bit frustrated. And in his fury, Balaam threatens his life. But God opens the mouth of the donkey and he speaks to Balaam. 
Remember, this is a Halloween sermon. This is applicable. Why are you hitting me? He says to Balaam. Have I not been a good donkey to you? You can imagine the shock on Balaam's face. Did my donkey just talk? But then to add even more surprise to Balaam's life, the angel of the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and he can see the angel with the sword ahead of him. The angel tells him, if your donkey hadn't seen me and veered off the path, you would have walked right into me and I would have killed you. Balaam realizes that he had been wrong and he tells the angel that if it is what God wants, he will return home and not go work for Balak. But the angel tells him that he must go, but speak only what the Lord tells him to speak. So Balaam and his donkey eventually reach Balak. But at this point, it's clear that Balaam is not there to curse Israel. God has spoken, saying to Balaam that he is not to curse Israel, but only speak what God shares with him. And in this section, Balak and Balaam repeat the same actions three times. They begin by offering a sacrifice of seven bulls and seven rams on altars. Then Balaam goes off to meet God before he returns to Balak and shares the words of the Lord with him. The first time Balaam goes to meet with God, he receives words of blessing for Israel. Well, Balaam thinks to himself, God did say to only share what he tells me. So he returns to Balak and he shares a message of blessing over Israel. He tells Balak, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom God has not denounced? Balak is perplexed and a little bit angry. I wanted you to curse them, not profess blessings over them. This is the opposite of helpful. So Balak offers to take him to another place and repeat the process. They sacrifice. Balaam goes to meet God. God speaks to him and Balaam returns with yet another blessing. See, I received a command to bless, he says. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord, their God is with them acclaimed as a king among them. Just as in the first blessing, Balak is furious. Fine, okay, don't curse them, but don't bless them either. You're giving them favor. So Balak suggests they go to a third place. Let's try again. As they set up and they make the sacrifices, Balaam stops, and he does not venture off to meet with God. The text says in 24 verse 1 that Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. So he didn't go off to wait for a message. Instead, he looks towards the wilderness where the Israelites are camping. And it says that the spirit of God comes upon him. And he says the third blessing ending with this line, blessed is everyone who blesses you talking about Israel and cursed is everyone who curses you. Now, Nikayla has mentioned a few times in the past several weeks that Numbers is essentially a journey back towards Eden. As the children of Israel get closer and closer to the promised land, we should expect to see images and things that remind us of the garden. Land overflowing with magical manna, rocks bursting with incredible amounts of water, desolate landscape turned luscious garden. We've seen when serpents were in the land among the Israelites, just like in Eden. Now we've seen animals talking, just like in the garden. We've seen supernatural beings with swords standing in the way, just as the cherubim blocked Adam and Eve's way back in. We've seen curses, and now we've seen blessings. 
Israel is close to returning to this garden place where they will dwell with God and God is going to see this blessing through. The whole focus in this narrative is on Balaam's blessings. For as the story keeps pointing out, that is what God has told him to say. And when we read this story, it is important that we keep the promises that God made to Abraham back in Genesis in our minds. Remember, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are one cohesive unit. They were split up because they didn't all fit together on one scroll, but they do belong together. The promise between God and Abraham appears in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, which I think should be on the screen. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Gordon Wenham, in his book, Exploring the Old Testament, A Guide to the Pentateuch, says that the promise to Abraham involved four elements that reappear here in the Balaam story. The first is a promise of numerous descendants. This is, bless you. This is the key idea in Balaam's first oracle when he says, who can count the dust of Israel? or number the dust cloud of Israel. In other words, look how vast the nation of Israel has become. Then when they walk around, there's this large cloud of dust that follows. The second element is a promise of divine blessing and protection. This is reflected in Balaam's second oracle. Remember, the Lord their God is with them. The third element is a promise of land. This is the central topic in the first part of Balaam's third oracle where he says, how fair are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch far away, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. And finally, fourth, a promise that they will be a blessing to all the nations. And this Israelite king will bring peace to warring nations who threaten both Israel and each other. In 23, verse 19, Balaam's second oracle, he says, Has he, being God, not promised, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God promised to bless the line of Abraham, and he will fulfill that promise. He will not allow the Israelites, his children, to become cursed. Furthermore, he's going to ensure that they enter into this land that he's promised to them and return to this Edenic place. While the children of Israel do not see it, God has been blessing them and guiding them, fulfilling his promises all along. All throughout Numbers, Israel has been disobeying God, as we've seen. They've been complaining, they've been messing up, and it never really changes as much as we hope it does. And yet, despite God's desire to destroy them and just start over, Moses changed God's mind and he will not let them be destroyed. Ever since that, God has been ensuring that they make it into the land that he promised Abraham. This weird account of Balaam is the assurance of God seeing Israel into the land beyond the wilderness, regardless of what they do. Up until this point, it has seemed that Israel might not enter the land after all. There's uncertainty and fear in the minds of the Israelites, 
Everything seems like a disaster. It seems like this land is a distant idea that will never be theirs. It seems like death is surrounding them. Yet even when they don't see it, God is blessing them. Did you notice that there are no Israelites in this story? It begs the question how this ended up being written down in the first place. But it also suggests that the Israelites had no clue that this was even happening. They were in the wilderness, sleeping with and mingling with the Moabites, completely disobeying God. And up on the hill, beyond their awareness, Balak and Balaam are trying to pronounce curses over them. And all they can do is bless because God has called them blessed. The last time I was preaching, we were talking about the 12 spies who went into the land to see it before they entered and how most of Israel did not want to go into the land for fear of the people. The consequence for their disobedience was that they would die in the wilderness and the next generation would go in. What was Israel's fear before they disobeyed? That their children would be taken as plunder. Numbers 14 verse 3 says, our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? They were afraid of kings taking their children. And here's God, some 40 years later, after the Egypt generation has died off, taking their children as his plunder and bringing them into the land. What they feared came true, but in the best way possible. And in just two chapters from now, there is the next census when the next generation is counted prior to entering the land. Remember, the structure of numbers is kind of like a horseshoe in shape. And in the beginning, there is a census where all of Israel is counted. Then due to their disobedience, God says that the generation from Egypt uh, will die in the desert and only the next generation will go into the land. And in the past several weeks, we've read about the dying generation. And now all those people have died off. The next generation is all that remains, and they're waiting to see if they will indeed get to go in. There's still uncertainty surrounding that hope. And now we loop around to the other side of the horseshoe, and God is again blessing the nation and then requiring a census of who is in the nation of Israel. God has said that Israel is blessed, and he will hold to the promise of bringing them to this place. He will not let Balak or Balaam change that. As I spent time this week thinking about what this kind of story would mean for us as a church, I honestly struggled. I could say something about how God wants to bless us, which is true, but seems like an oversimplified religious platitude. But still, I think there is some truth in understanding that our being blessed is not dependent on whether or not we obey 100% of the time. I think it can be easy to blame ourselves for our lack of blessing, or take credit for when things are great. This passage indicates that God is the one who's determining who is blessed. But it can also be difficult when we don't feel like we are blessed by God. Like Israel in the wilderness, we wonder, why are things going so terribly wrong? Why do I feel alone? Why am I sad? Why can't I escape this feeling or the situation? What is going on in this world when will there be acceptance? But here it seems like God is saying that we have no idea how much he is blessing us. 
Like Israel, we are not aware of what God is doing up on the hillside as we continue our life here in the wilderness, trying to make sense of everything. I believe that to be true for us. I also believe that God is not just playing the short game. Israel spent 40 years in this desert. Generations died in the wilderness waiting for what they thought was the only blessing. Sometimes our short attention spans and lack of patience lead us to feel like we're just suffering in the wilderness pointlessly for 40 years. But what if it's just a not yet rather than a never? Or a matter of our eyes just not being opened like Balaam's were in the beginning? One of the beautiful things about the biblical narrative is that it reveals that God has always looked upon his people with great compassion. In the final wilderness speech in Deuteronomy 32, it says this of God and Israel. He sustained him in a desert land, in a howling wilderness waste. He shielded him, cared for him, guarded him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, as it spreads its wings, takes them up, and bears them aloft on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He set him atop the heights of the land and fed him with produce of the field. He nursed him with honey from the crags and with oil from flinty rock. Or as it says again in Psalm 91, verses 3 and 4, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. As we look into the New Testament, we find the gospel according to Mark and Matthew, both of which scholars think the authors are asserting Jesus as Yahweh. In Jesus' life, we see him preaching in Jerusalem for the first time in his ministry. In Matthew 23, in verse 37 reads, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's not unreasonable to read this account of Jesus and believe that the same word of God that blessed Israel in the face of curses is the same word of God that is proclaiming a blessing here in the New Testament. A blessing that reveals God's goodness to his people and stretches out forever in time, only coming from the Lord. Like I said earlier, literally nobody in the nation of Israel is aware of Balaam and Balak. They don't find out, to the best of our knowledge. It's not as if they observed this interaction between God and Balaam and thought to themselves, oh, wow, God is watching out for us. And we began today by talking about how this is one of the few positive stories in the book of Numbers. And it's not hard to see how that could be true. The past several weeks have shown us the harsh realities of being God's people and how God deals with them. It would have been easy to assume that there was no hope, no blessing available to Israel. And in comes the story of God protecting Israel and ensuring their blessing in the face of real threats. As for us, I understand the feeling of uncertainty around God's blessing. There are times in our lives when we feel like we're just doing our best to get by and have no idea what is to come. But the idea that this text shows us is that God does a whole lot that we do not notice. And that's okay. 
My hope for us as a church is that we'd be a witness to one another yeah. and to the community of Bonus. Bonus. That God is at work restoring and blessing. Yeah. It doesn't seem Yeah. How many of us go through a time where we fail to see how God could possibly be doing anything for our good? We question why our present circumstances seems, seem like an endless tunnel of darkness, devoid of all things good and beautiful. Some of us right now feel like we're doing everything we can to find the good, and yet it seems impossible. And there's certainly a place for us to be attentive to one another, so that when we see something that others do not, they are met with words of hope and encouragement. But there are still times where none of us are able to notice what God is doing, when we don't need to know everything. So my other hope for us is that we'd be okay with the unknowing. That when it seems like blessing is reserved for others, that we would remember the loving and protective nature of a God who's compassionate and kind. The wilderness is not the end of the story, but it teaches us to be okay with the uncertainty. We don't need Egypt's ways of storing up and trying to control the abundance of our life. We need to unlearn those habits and rest in the presence of the Lord, who all along has been blessing, even when we don't see it. Let's pray. God who dwells with us in the clear and the obscure, we admit that we prefer the moments when we see what you are doing and know your intentions. But those moments seem few and far between. Might we actually believe that we are deeply loved, valued, cared for, and that you long to bless us? Would we remember that your blessings extend beyond us and into the deepest and darkest parts of this world? That where there is despair, let us bring your message of hope and of blessing. And when we can't see the ways in which you are moving, help us to be okay with the unknowing. Thank you for being at work despite what we get right and wrong, for it depends on you, not on us. In Jesus' great name we pray.